This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, British writer Robert McFarlane joined me for a special long-form conversation about his writing and thoughts on the connections between landscape, language, people and place. We delve into Robert's latest book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey. We also draw on his other works, including Landmarks, The Old Ways, and Mountains of the Mind. Then, finally, Danya Jacobs, a senior lawyer from Environmental Justice Australia, talks about the federal court case she co-led and won on behalf of the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum Group. This court case was initiated to protect our old-growth native forests and endangered species. We discuss what the final court orders mean for the protection of these native forests in Victoria. And Ben joins me to talk all about federal politics. Hey there, Ben. Morning, Amy. How are you going, mate? Morning. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks, mate. Um, Hey, thanks to all the listeners who sent all those lovely messages last week. That was really nice, wasn't it? I was seriously like overwhelmed. I don't know. There was I couldn't think of a better word, but it was it took me by surprise and in a very nice way that people, you know, made the effort to leave a note and say what they really loved about about Triple R and um yeah, it was really heartwarming. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, I told my partner about it and she was like, Oh well la la for you, you know, people like you on the radio, Ben. So <laughs> <laughs> So that that was good, you know, punching my little bubble straight away. <laughs> Um, and uh, and it is really nice that we get to keep talking a little bit about Radiothon, even though we're back into the usual programming. And um, in terms of federal politics, uh, I know that a lot of people have told me they listen to this segment as their weekly politics update, so no pressure, Ben, but um, this is very important information we're about to uh, distill for anyone who's listening. Um, let's talk about aged care given how critical it is, and it's an ongoing issue still, and it may also return um, in terms of Australia's approach to coronavirus, and um, hopefully we don't have a, a third wave. But, of course, the, the, the feature of the second wave has certainly been aged care and um, unprecedented deaths in aged care that were obviously excess deaths. These are deaths that would not have occurred. And, of course, um, people who've passed away far be far early, far too early, and of course their family members are really um, no doubt upset and um, dealing with a lot of, of difficulty right now. But one of the things I think that a lot of people have felt has been lacking is the leadership from aged care minister Richard Colbeck. And we did see some very odd moves by Scott Morrison to essentially take away his responsibilities but still retain him as aged care minister. I mean, what does that actually mean? Like, it's, it seems like it's not a very normal <laughs> decision to make. Well, <laughs> you can keep a, the title, but you don't have to do the job. That's a very good question, Amy. What does it mean? Um, mm. So um, presumably it means that Mr Colbeck has been stripped of his responsibilities 
insofar as it relates to the COVID response, which I would have thought would have been a very high priority for him uh, just at the moment, given that we know that um, uh, close to 400 people have died in aged care now. Aged care is a federal responsibility. It's regulated by the federal government. The aged care quality safety regulator sits in Minister Colbeck's portfolio. You know, you'd have to say it's been a disastrous performance by him, not just in terms of his media appearances at his Senate committee bumbles, but actually the policy response itself where it's been shown that the federal government basically just didn't have a plan. They, they, they weren't prepared for what would happen if there was an outbreak of COVID uh, in aged care settings. Um, and that's been shown now um, in two different states, New South Wales and Victoria, we've had very distressing outbreaks that have killed a lot of people. And that's directly responsible. was directly the result of the aged care workforce not being properly skilled, not being properly prepared for a, a difficult infection control challenge. Yeah, and not having the appropriate staff. I mean, um, yeah, simply you know, not having, having enough registered people. nurses would yeah. be <laughs> a pretty vital yeah. part of providing care to anyone who's unwell. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, symbolically a lot of people might have seen if they're following politics closely was the um, Senate appearance, not the committee appearance, but in the actual Senate um, Minister Colbeck was, he was in attendance and I guess um, reporting to the Senate about some of the things that have happened with aged care. And um, and when Penny Wong, the leader of um, the opposition in the Senate, uh, got up to talk about um, his performance and what had been happening and to respond to his statement, he got up and walked out. Um, I think it, a lot of people felt that that might have been, you know, quite indicative of his or at least the, the look is, of what his approach has been to aged care in this um, COVID era. Yeah, extraordinary scenes, really. Uh, Minister Colbeck uh, gave a little speech where he took responsibility for the policy mayhem in his portfolio uh, and then quickly left the Senate. Um, uh, right as Penny Wong um, stood up to take note of his statement and to uh, basically, you know, point out a few of the failings of the of the federal government's response in that matter, and Minister Colbeck sort of turns tail and leaves the chamber. It's a it's a really bad look, um, and I think it sort of sums up uh, a lot of the way that the federal government has responded to this challenge. You know, um, and in particular, you know, there's been a lot of shade thrown by the federal government at the Victorian government. So just yesterday, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, um, you know, basically had a very very strident statement about how Dan Andrews had been responsible for the biggest public policy failure ever um, and, you know, got stuck right into Andrews and the Victorian government. Um, you know, I don't think this is playing very well politically in Victoria just now. I mean, it may well be that the New South Wales people are pretty upset with Victoria, dragging the, the rest of the country down. But for those of us who are living here right now in the lockdown, it's pretty tough. It's actually really tough. Um, and, and I think Victorians are going to remember the attitude of the Morrison government in a couple of years' time. This stuff tends to stick around in voters' memories, and I don't think this augurs well for the performance of the 
Liberal National Party federally in a couple of years' time. Mm. And as you say, there has been a huge amount of blame shifting from the federal government to the state government, particularly the Victorian state government. And that's uh, not only in aged care, but also with the economy. Apparently, it's uh, Victoria's fault that um, the economy is doing so poorly. Um, That certainly obviously is not the case. It's a lot more complex than that. And um, Victoria does not make up all of Australia. But there is um, a very interesting kind of development in terms of um, people claiming unemployment benefits in Victoria. That has risen by 7.2% since the end of June. And of course, as you say, so many people are struggling in in a very much a hard lockdown in Melbourne and of course, a broader lockdown across regional Victoria. So yes, um, we are struggling, but it's interesting to see that really the response from the federal government on so many different policy fronts has been to say, well, that wasn't our fault, you know, it's it's not our problem, even though it technically is. Yeah, um, a good article by George Megalogenis uh, in the the nine Fairfax papers over the weekend, where he points out that you know we've we've had a kind of return of the old Morrison. This is a little bit like the Morrison of the bushfires, mm. where it's uh, you know I don't ho- hold a hose, mate, or you know <laughs> we're, we're we're not responsible for uh, you know the the COVID outbreaks um, and and basically trying to blame even the aged care stuff on the Victorian government. Um, yeah, I think I think there's been and 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 that's before you even get into the economic issues. Okay, so uh, Frydenberg's launched this big critique of the Victorian government, but he's the treasurer. He's the treasurer of the nation, and one of the things that he's about to do as a treasurer is to cut a whole bunch of people's job seeker supplements um, by two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars a fortnight um, in about that in about like late September. You know, in other words, about two weeks after Victoria is supposedly going to come out of the stage four lockdown. And fingers crossed we do. So that's going to be devastating for those people who are on Job Seeker and have been relying on that supplement to be able to make ends meet, to pay bills, to pay rent. Um, it's also going to be really bad for the economy because it's a subtraction of aggregate demand. It's going to reduce the spending power of hundreds of thousands of people in Victoria, and that's going to further damage the Victorian government uh, and the Victorian economy, I should say. Um, is there any justification for it? No, well, no, not really. Um, you know, we actually need to be keeping on spending um, in order to prop up the economy. Um and, you know, where is the roadmap for the economy going forward? At the moment, all we've got are a few half-baked proposals around a gas-led economic recovery. This is coming from the government's COVID commission, which is stacked full of fossil fuel executives. Um, and they're arguing that, you know, the way forward is natural gas exploration and exploitation. The problem with gas is there's not many jobs in it. So um, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. There's plenty of blame, obviously, sheeted home to the Victorian response particularly in quarantine, but the economic response from the federal government is starting to get threadbare now, and there's some genuine questions about how they're going to proceed after September and if they're going to continue to wind back these stimulus payments. Mm. It is very concerning to see this blame shifting because really no doubt anyone would prefer decent action and you know, a policy response that was sufficient to the challenge that we're facing, particularly as so many economists have already suggested 
greater stimulus measures because, of course, I mean, if you're looking at Victoria in particular, so many businesses have been um, reduced or put on hold or put on JobKeeper and um, there are really very much a lack of investment coming through from any other source except any of the federal or state governments. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the economy's in trouble. Um, it's contracted by its sharpest contraction in history. Uh, we're about to get the June GDP figures. Um, they're likely to be devastating, you know, probably about a 6% shrinking in the economy. Um, wages have fallen, obviously, as you'd expect in a deep recession. Um, you know, the, the JobKeeper stimulus has been quite successful, I think, in averting a catastrophe. Uh, it's been good at propping up demand, but more needs to be done. That's quite clear. We're going to need stimulus well into 2021. And the concern really is that the government seems to be resetting into sort of austerity mode where they're saying, all right, well, that's it. You've had your lot. You've had your stimulus. Um, now everyone get back to work. Well, it's not as simple as that. You know, the jobs aren't there. The economic demand is not there. And it's the role of the federal government to step in and provide that demand. Mm. And we have seen on another front um, in the finances uh, area, superannuation. And of course, we referenced it um, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the Liberal Party um, and coalition government seeking to capitalise on the situation uh, of COVID-19 and push through something they've been dying to uh, get through, which is basically to reverse the, um, the change to superannuation, which will is due to happen from 9.5% um, to 12%. Compulsory superannuation, of course, is a big feature of Australia's um, retirement kind of solution, um, of course, and so many people do rely partially at least on their superannuation in retirement. And we have seen at least $40 billion in retirement savings having been withdrawn by Australians during COVID-19. So we're already seeing, I think, a lot of people under financial strain. And uh, it seems that the coalition government is really seeking to entrench inequality um, in the long term by removing something which, uh, you know, Labor, of course, is so well known for, and Paul Keating in particular, of um, of introducing the superannuation guarantee. What are your thoughts about um, Kevin Rudd and Paul Keating entering the fray, entering the argument and defending uh, superannuation's honour? Yeah, well, that's right. It's a really interesting time for superannuation policy. So, you know, it's ironic, isn't it, that the government re really got itself re-elected by attacking Labor's policies around retirement incomes and in particular franking credits and policies like that that Labor wanted to introduce back last year in 2019. Now that they're in government, they're full speed ahead with dismantling Australia's superannuation system. And that seems pretty clear when you look at their actions over the last six months or so. So firstly, yes, they allowed people to start dipping into their superannuation uh, you know, in order to, to deal with their financial necessity. 
um, the argument from the government was, well, that's your money, you should be allowed to access it. But of course, the effect of that has been for something like half a million low-income Australians to completely empty their superannuation accounts. That's been a disaster for their retirement savings. The government didn't even need to do that. Of course, it could have borrowed money at record low interest rates and provided that income support through the tax system. It didn't do that. Instead, it attacked superannuation. And now we're seeing the second tranche of this attack, which is to try and uh, stop the planned increase of superannuation from the current rate, which is uh, nine and a bit percent, which will go all the way up to 12 percent over the next few years. And that's uh, a long term planned increase to 12 percent. That's been baked into the legislation for years now. But the government has never liked superannuation and it's seizing the opportunity now to attack it when it feels it has the political opportunity. So it looks as though the government's going to vote, try and vote against or try and remove those bills that will increase superannuation. Again, with the argument, well, you know, you don't need the money in 30 years' time. You need the money now. So um, if we get rid of these superannuation increases, people will get higher wages. The problem with that argument is it doesn't really stack up because wages are falling in Australia. So uh, an increase in super is probably the only way that um, wages will increase. Without this mandated increase to super, it's simply likely that employers will pocket the difference, I think. Yeah, absolutely they will. Um, it's Certainly we haven't seen them uh, decide to increase wages in a big way for a very, very long time um, and, and of course, it is a false argument to suggest that um, wages growth won't rise because of superannuation. Um, it's just not the case. Um, one of the other areas that has just recently jumped up, um, and, and of course, it's another thing that seems to be um, a theme of the coalition government, is this concern around foreign interference, foreign governments interfering in Australia's um, relations, in Australia's sectors, various sectors, business sector, politics, but now apparently also in universities. Um, and it was interesting to see that they were seeking to, I guess, establish an inquiry into um, foreign interference in Australia's universities. What is, is behind all of this? What's behind this is the Cold War that we seem to be enthusiastically entering with China. So the government's very concerned at Chinese influence in our university system, um, and it's using that as a pretext to look at university research deals with the Chinese government and whether they're undercutting Australian national security. Um, of course, there's no focus on similar kinds of deals with, say, American defence companies, uh, of which, by the way, the, the university sector has quite a number. Um, no, this is all about the China scare, um, and it feeds into the growing um, chill, really, in our relations with China, um, which doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, there was a speech to the National Press Club by the Deputy Ambassador from China last week um, in which the, the Deputy Ambassador actually gave a really nuanced and I thought quite conciliatory speech about Australian-Chinese relations. But I think it's a sign of the times when the way that that was reported, even by the ABC, was very much about um, in kind of hostile terms. It's quite a, quite hawkish reporting of that speech, which I 
thought was quite conciliatory. And, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of statements were cherry-picked out to make it seem as though China was threatening Australia. Look, there's no doubt that there's an ongoing chill in the relationship. But um, it does concern me that, once again, universities being beaten over the head of a stick over policies which they were encouraged to adopt. I mean, they've been told for decades now, go out, sign international research deals, you know, bring in the money. Um, at the same time, this government has cut research funding. Um, it's pretty hard to be a university right now. You seem to be getting attacked no matter what you do. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, we have seen some, I guess, escalation in the rhetoric in recent days. And I agree, it is um, really important to start to look at things carefully when China speaks and to not um, to not kind of make these ridiculous judgments uh, straight away. We have, though, um, seen some statements from uh, the Global Times newspaper, which is um, a state-led uh, newspaper in, in China. Yes, China's sort of tabloid newspaper for the Chinese government. Indeed. And um, I did hear earlier this morning that um, they recycled a quote, a very famous quote, which apparently most journalists have forgotten is actually a classic quote, and it was from um, <clears throat> Singapore's uh, founding Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, who once said that Australia would become the white trash of Asia. And of course, um, in the Global Times just recently, they uh, just referenced that um, that classic quote that was from Singapore saying that Australia would become the poor white trash of Asia um, because China did not need us um, to pull themselves out of poverty, but Australia needs um, them more than they do us. And I found that really interesting that they were referencing um, old, old terminology that was there. And that was really about you know, hinting at the fact in a very strong way that Australia doesn't really understand China and even Asia, the Asia-Pacific region, and it doesn't even try to seek to um, to, to build bridges and to, to understand um, in a cultural sense. Yeah, it's an interesting quote, isn't it? Um, of course, that, that quote was uh, made back in the 1980s when Paul Keating was the Prime Minister, and it was uh, you know, Australia was a pretty different country back then. You know, Australia has opened itself up to the world much more since that time. And, of course, we've traded enthusiastically with our Asian partners, including China, in that time. But there's no doubt that the kind of Australian uh, mass culture or, or even the Australian political elite, we're not particularly culturally literate when it comes to our you know, our Asian neighbours, you know, how many Australian politicians speak Mandarin or Bahasa, you know, um, there's, there's very few um, bilingual or multilingual politicians or even politicians who have a, an experience um, in some of our closest neighbours. Um, so, you know, I worry about Australia's future, both diplomatically and in a kind of um, geopolitical sense. Um, we are, I think, increasingly isolated. And, you know, the worst impulses of the Morrison government, of course, are xenophobia and um, a kind of suburban populism that clearly is not going to be helped in the, in the increasingly hostile environment in which we find ourselves. Mm, and it certainly doesn't help um, the Australian journalist Cheng Lei, who has been detained in China um, over a, about a month ago now, and um, we've just found out about that this morning as a general population 
it is um, concerning for her, of course, as it is for any Australian who might be over there, if our foreign relations are very much souring with China. So that's um, another thing to keep an eye on. Um, ben, just finally, the fabulous act of which has a very long name, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, uh, is currently being reviewed. And um, that may be no surprise to people. Uh, Graham Samuel, who actually is a business person, has been tasked with over overseeing and looking at that regulation and, and environmental law. Um, and he delivered his interim report a little while ago. And the coalition government, um, of course, Susan Lee is the environment minister. Um, she's back in cabinet. Uh, she was removed a little while ago. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, for anyone who has a, an a memory. Um, and uh, and she had some obviously some interesting legacy there. But she has since tried to introduce some kind of interim measures or interim amendments to the Act that a lot of people have suggested feels a bit like um, Back to the Future, a little bit Tony Abbott 2.0. Um, what really is the coalition government doing at the moment? Because they are about to debate this legislation today and there is a lot of controversy. Well, that's right. So um, the EPBC Act um, is... The problem with it is it's not working. So um, if we are to look at Australia's record on, for example, biodiversity extinctions, it's getting worse, you know. So um, has this piece of legislation worked to stop the extinction crisis in Australia? No, it's failed. Um, and the government review that it commissioned itself has found that, reported on by Graham Samuel. Um, what's the coalition doing about that? Well, fairly normal kind of Dracula looking after the blood bank kind of action here, which is to uh, propose some uh, relatively lukewarm kind of changes to the Act, not to strengthen it, but it, arguably to weaken it and, in fact, to make it easier for development, particularly mining development, to go through. You know, so there's still this kind of idea that the environmental legislation is some kind of green tape that's holding back uh, regional economic development. Um, and so one of the th things that I think that the mining industry is looking at is um, to remove the duplication over environmental law. So if you get an approval from the states, you would no longer need to meet approval on the federal legislation. Uh, I mean, you only have to think about that for about 30 seconds to see that that's a bad idea, right? Because mm. the point of this act is environmental protection. <laughs> it's <laughs> not about uh, reducing green tape. It's not about, um, you know, making it easier for development to go ahead. Uh, but, I mean, what would you expect from this government? I mean, the, the coalition, since Tony Abbott was elected, has an absolutely woeful record on the environment. It's difficult to point to a single achievement, really. Um, on almost every metric, they've gone backwards. Greenhouse gas emissions have gone up, hugely gone up. And that was because the government repealed the carbon tax, obviously. Um, extinctions have got worse. You know, the government's response to the bushfire crisis was terrible. Um How's the Barrier Reef going? It's in deep trouble. You know, anywhere you look just about when it comes to the environment and biodiversity, we're getting worse. Um, so I, I don't hold too many hopes for Susan Lee's bill here. Yeah, land clearing at record levels as well. So um, it is very concerning and something that uh, I believe I'm going to pick up with Dania Jacobs from the Environmental Good. Justice Good Australia. Yeah. So that will be great. Um 
Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through what is currently on the agenda in federal politics. And, and it'll be obviously really interesting to see how that debate um, plays out today in Parliament. Yeah, thanks, Amy. And I look forward to the Robert McFarlane interview. He's one of my favourite writers. So that's oh, great. Thank you. No, I absolutely adore him and um, I can't wait to share it with everyone. So make sure you've uh, got your cup of tea ready. Good get, mate. Very good get. Yeah. No, I'm really excited. It was it was the best time I've had. Apart from, I think, I don't want to rank anyone, but he's right up there with Kerry O'Brien. So. Whoa, that's 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 big talk there. I well know. done. <laughs> hey, thanks, Amy. Appreciate thanks, it, mate. Thanks, Ben. See ya. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, and uh, I'm really absolutely delighted to be joined by Robert McFarlane, who is uh, based over in Britain and is a writer. He is, in fact, the author of a number of books that cover subject matter, particularly regarding nature, place and people. Those books, which you may be familiar with, are Mountains of the Mind, The Wild Places, The Old Ways, Landmarks and The Lost Words, which uh, Robert co-wrote with Jackie Morris. And he's also been involved in a number of artistic projects in film and music, which we hopefully we'll touch on as well. And Robert does teach for a living and um, is also a fellow of Emmanuel College at Cambridge University. I welcome Robert now and thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks, Amy. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I was so delighted when I saw your latest book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, which is really very extensive and just beautiful in terms of the illustration on the front cover as well. It seems to really get the mood of the book so beautifully. In terms of Underland, this is also very much a landscape and people book, Mm. as are your previous books like The Old Ways and Landmarks. And I was interested in the way that your writing has evolved and the topics that you've tackled and how you've been influenced and why you've chosen certain subject matter. Hmm. And I wanted to bring us back to some of your earlier works to kind of set the scene in terms of your formative years as a writer and a thinker about landscape and nature and people and place. And one of those really fascinating books, I mean, they're all fascinating, but one of those is The Old Ways and you do talk about landscape in some really fascinating terminology and and references. And one of them that I'd like to ask about first up, and maybe it's a little bit too deep for a first question, but I'm (laughs) going to jump straight in. You write, we are adept if occasionally embarrassed at saying what we make of places, but we are far less good at saying what places make of us. For some time now, it has seemed to me that the two questions we should ask of any strong landscape are these. Firstly, what do I know when I'm in this place that I can know nowhere else? And then vainly, what does this place know of me that I cannot know of myself? And to me, it just encapsulated a lot of the writing and the thinking that I've read of yours Hmm. and how 
although landscape seems to be some kind of abstract concept, it's very deeply personal. So I wanted, I guess, to spring from that point and that prompt and ask you about landscape and how it has brought you to personal reflection and obviously, you know, shaped your life. Wow. Well, th- thank you. Thank you for the introduction and, and for that question. I, I was slightly hoping for, you know, what's your favorite color or something. <laughs> you, you, given, you, you could also me... answer that. <laughs> it's yellow uh, at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, but you've given me a tough one. I, I mean, I ask those questions early in the old ways because they fascinate me, not because in a sense I, I can answer them. What, what, what I can say is I, I've always been interested in this idea that we can we can think of thought itself as site specific and as as motion sensitive. Put that a different way, we're very at ease with thinking that certain landscapes can have certain species in them that are uh, specific to those habitats, as it were, or s- certain flowers, or certain minerals, certain kinds of rock, or even certain kinds of weather. It's a little more unusual to think that they might have certain kinds of thought in them, and I came to be very struck by that notion of, of thought as a, almost a, a, a species that has a habitat. And I think it's true, if I can be a little more concrete about that, there are thoughts I have had in while climbing mountains that I could not have had at sea level. There are thoughts that I've had while walking 20 to 30 miles a day that were born of the tiredness in my body and the, and the landscapes through which I was moving at that time. And the first line of the old ways, the book you you quote from, is this book could not have been written by sitting still. So, in that sense, I join a long line of Walker writers who believe that 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 thought is is made by walking, rather than something that you discover at the end of a walk that you go to. And I do love that idea, and it's been very it's been very motivating for me as a as a writer, and it's 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 kept me moving <laughs> though, mm. though the last six months. Uh, for me, as for all of us, has been one where confinement has been has been the situation for thought. Mm. And one of the really interesting connections that you draw in terms of thought and movement is highlighting things like etymology, particularly of the verb to learn, and it's meaning to acquire knowledge, but you trace it back um, in terms of its etymology and saying that moving backwards in language, the old English, I'm guessing, I don't know, Leonian? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. We don't quite know how they how they sounded back then. but To get knowledge to be cultivated, and then from that, the path leads further back to proto-Germanic mm. to the word lisnosion, which has a base sentence of to follow or to find a track. And so that to me was so fascinating and provoking so many ideas and thoughts in my mind Good. about how yeah. you know movement and walking can be so intensely connected to learning and knowledge. Yeah, well, it, it, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a uh, lexophile, as it were. I, mean, I just love language and I, I love the fact that language has you know, roots and paths as well, roots in both senses of of the word, as it were. And following to learn this everyday verb that we don't think of as having a past, really, it's just one we use all the time. But you follow it all the way back into the Proto-Indo-European and you find this profound connection between moving on foot along a path in a landscape and learning. So knowledge and and walking are, are rooted deep, 
together that they are one path really at the beginning and you see this in across language we talk about prints as it were uh well a footprint is what you leave when you walk and a uh, and increasingly, a, a, a print um, is what you leave when you write as as well. And um, there are there are many examples of how the language we use to describe walking and the language we use to describe thinking align. And it's not always the case. I, mean, I should say, and I do say in in the old ways that sometimes when you've you know you've walked for twenty miles or twenty five miles and you're just sick, you can't think of anything other than the than the nice cold <laughs> drink at the end of the day or or, or stopping. And, and many kinds of walking are antithetical to thought. Um, but but there are so many ways in which walking is a more than functional activity in human history. It's it, I, I call it you know our oldest sensing technology. And it's still used as a as a vital sensing technology. Ecologists carry out what's called the foot transect. They they get on the ground and they walk in a straight line and they see what they can see in that straight line. Um, archaeologists and landscape architects have this wonderful phrase, ground truthing, which again is stuff that just can't be done really by remote sensing technologies, by satellites or by the aerial view. You have to be on foot on the ground. And we've been that way for as long as we've been human. Mm. And you do make it really clear that this idea isn't a new one. In fact, it's very ancient, really, mm-hmm. in terms of the evolution of human beings. And you do reference Australia's First Nations people and the concept of dream time and, mm. and walking as well. And also bring in some, you know, fascinating and sometimes moody European <laughs> philosophers like Kierkegaard um, and Nietzsche. Yes. And, uh, and it was really interesting to get their take on it as well. Nietzsche being very absolute, as you say, only those thoughts which come from walking have any value. <laughs> yep. So laying it down as Nietzsche yeah. does. Certainly does. But it did make me think about philosophically, there's something that is quite transcendent about movement within nature. Hmm. And that does make me think about your first book, Mountains of the Mind and the Sublime, and you know the kind of transcendent experiences one can have in a very, as you say, strong landscape, mm. a place that is really wild, like, for example, Isle of Skye. Mm. You can really, I mean, I had, I've had transformative moments in those landscapes, um, and it just, there's something, as you say, that it just couldn't have happened anywhere else, and it probably won't be the same experience anywhere else. There's something really special. And I know that you visited your grandparents in Scotland when you were growing up. And when I was reading about the fact that you said Underland is the first book with no Scotland in it, yep. um, it, <laughs> it did make me think about that and and the connection with places that are so wild like Scotland and how they might shape a person. So I, I also wanted yeah. to ask, I guess, before we delve into what's under the ground, um, <laughs> I did want to greedily ask about mountains <laughs> yeah well I, they, they <laughs> one of my still favorite have my, subjects yeah mine too so you've been to the isle of sky then you've... yeah oh it wow. was honestly my most the best place i've been to be honest wow um, did you yeah, get up and, on the coolin ridge then oh i didn't because it was winter Oof, right the um the isle of sky rescue volunteers warned me at the pub in Carbost not to go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, please don't go because we don't go. want to rescue yeah, you. Yeah, right. 
Well, I'll be there as it happens next week. Um, all oh, being really? well, yeah, I'm going to get a couple of three or four days in the mountains before the academic year really starts. Uh, it'd be the first time I've seen the big hills since before the pandemic, and I think we'll pro- we'll probably head to the Kulin. Um, yeah, oh. the Kulin in winter is 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 about as serious as as mountaineering gets here. So I think you took yeah. you took a wise decision, but um Well, yeah. When but, we arrived, it was raining, hailing, okay. snowing, like alternating <laughs> and like really windy yes. and um and we couldn't even find our way, but we were actually right next to the Coolins and it was literally outside the window. So it was a, an amazing place to explore, even when it was freezing cold. But I have a lot of respect for their sheep now. Oh yes, they seem yeah. very tough. Yeah, yeah, they yeah they are tough. Um, yeah, the the, the Gabra and the basalt of the Kulin, um, for those who don't know it, is is the closest thing we have to a fully alpine ridge. Um, you know, absolute shark tooth, jagged ridge. Um, the full traverse of which is a is a, a notoriously difficult challenge involving you know lots of mountaineering and abseiling in about twenty four hours, so um, I won't be doing that when I'm up there. But I, w- I hope to get up on mm-hmm. up on the ridge though. Um, yeah, I mean the simplest way to describe the twenty years of writing I've done is is a, is a slow movement from over about two and a half thousand pages from and and nine books from the tops of mountains to the to the bottoms to the inside of the earth from the from from the upper sunlit peaks to the underland uh the mountains have still got my heart you know I'd, I'd much rather climb a hill than than go down a cave which is not to say that I don't find the darkness fascinating but yeah I grew up um I grew up climbing I still climb um I'm somewhat risk averse I went through the kind of young man's phase of of of, of undertaking uh, climbing expeditions both in terms of rock climbing and then big big mountaineering expeditions in places like the Tian Shan and uh, and and the Alps, which were you know exceeded my capacity as a mountaineer. So I I learned and I survived. Uh, fortunately, not 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 everyone does, and and passed through that phase pretty quickly. But the but the, the power and the pull remained. And Man's of the Mind was an attempt to which yeah I guess I wrote in 2001 2002 as a young man in my early to mid twenties. Was an attempt to understand why why I was drawn up to mountains in a way that could put me at risk and, and my loved ones at, in the way of harm too, in terms of loss. But also why, as a culture, the the quote unquote Western imagination had fallen in love with mountains, really very recently, like three hundred years ago. Mm. Um, and so I, I tracked those two fascinations through history and through my my own life. And you're right; it it, it in my life it leads. It leads back to Scotland and all the time I've spent up there in those mountains growing up and, and, and then as an adult. Yeah. And have you ever had a chance to climb the Coolins? Yes. Yes. I've been on the Coolins, um, not not for a long time now, not for about 15 years, but I was there four or five times, never done the, the full traverse of the ridge. Um, there's a mm. notorious feature called the TD Gap, uh, which is a, a big, big abseil. Uh, down and then a, a, a rock climb out and there's also <laughs> one of the best named features in British mountains which is the the inaccessible pinnacle of Skur Jarrog did they tell you about that one when you were when no. you were there so th- <laughs> it it's it's known as the in pin to, to climbers uh, and I've attempted it twice and 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 backed off it twice oh wow it's not at all a, di- a difficult technical climb but the wind was big on both occasions and and the rock was wet and bah. anyway i should have done it but um it looks like a shark's fin of rock of basalt um yeah. 
uh, sticking straight out of the side of a mountain. And the, the notorious route description from the early 1900s, from one of the early ascensionists says, there is a fall to oblivion and death on the right-hand side and a fall even further and more dangerous on the left. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, you want the right conditions for that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to know whether there are many right conditions in Sky. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I do follow some people who live there and um, they have been recently just in awe of how perfect the weather has been in terms of just pure sunshine and actually maybe one time with no wind that's about to change so I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get the proper sky sky yeah exactly so maybe we can move into what is really the other side the flip side of mountains hmm. um, and it was such a really interesting idea to me this connection that you draw between deep time and the hmm. underland and also the kind of claustrophobia that comes to mind straight away when you're thinking about dark places that hmm. are deep underground and also that we don't really think about what's under us very rarely, to be yeah. honest. Like I honestly don't think that I've thought that much about it bar for fungi, um, which is only a recent thing that I truly started to understand. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, how did you get to that point in your literary story where you've tackled these fascinating subjects about linguistics and, and also about mountains mm. and walking and paths, but how did you get to underland and under our feet? Yeah, I mean, it is a very aversive space. I think that's the first thing to say. We don't, we don't look down or, 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 or go low, partly because our associations are to do with fear, to do with death, to do with confinement, to do with imprisonment, um, exploitative labour. Uh, whereas the mountains, we 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 celebrate and they draw us up, in part because we we believe they will be beautiful and exalting places. Um, what I discover discovered through years of exploring the underland is is that it too is has an astonishing tradition of association with 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 wonder with revelation, with knowledge, with with seeing in darkness. But the answer as to why I went down there in the first place is, um, is that in 2010, I mentioned this briefly in the book, but it was an astonishing year. I don't know if people will remember back through the, the various calamities, but in the course of eight months, there was the Haitian earthquake. There was the Deepwater Horizon oil drilling blowout in the Gulf of Mexico. There was the... Icelandic volcano, Eyjafjallajökull, which exploded and grounded all, all flights across North America and Europe. And then the summer of that same year, there was the collapse of the, of the mine in Chile, which trapped those 33 miners who then astonishingly all survived in the darkness and were brought out one by one to the surface in this extraordinary kind of rebirth myth. And so for eight months, the, the underworld was absolutely declaring itself on, on the surface, both in terms of human practices of of, of mining and drilling, um, deep water and, and chili, and the unbiddable, um, unknowable forces of, of the earth itself that, that rose up in the form of the volcano and the earthquake. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind that we, we think so little about what's beneath us, partly because we suppress the knowledge of, of extractive industries and all that they, they bring, and partly because there is a sublime power uh, to the underworld and so this this disjunction between the power of what lies beneath us and our, our our ignorance with it just I just couldn't get away from it. So when I finished the old ways, that was what I turned to 
and and began work on and it it turned into a very long long project and i wrote the last pages of the first draft as those those thai footballers famously went in under the mountain in um in thailand with their coach and then were trapped by the by the rainburst that brought the rising floodwaters and again the entire world was absolutely focused on this this modern myth in the making yeah, that's so true. And and an Australian element to it. I think Australia got a little bit excited about our critical role. Yes. So you sent you sent a great deal of of of, of specialist aid, right? Yeah. And, and specialists, cave divers and Indeed. I think one of them was an anaesthetist and they the two men who were from Australia actually won Australians of the Year, the the big award here for that feat. And uh, yeah, we were also fascinated that also, I think, sparked our imagination in the sense of who are these people who go cave diving? Yes. Who goes to these places? Yeah, why would you, risk? right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but but when that question, why would you, is um, is is really the one at the at the heart of Undland because there are many reasons not to go down, and yet we still do. And not only do we now, for you know reasons as esoteric and obsessional as cave diving, but we have done really since before we've been anatomically modern humans and that i think that's what what when i realized that there was an, a story to to be told here that was far far older than the one i thought i was i was going to tell in terms of human involvement we now we have a dating on the on the red handprints on the walls of a limestone cave in western spain that 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 go back to around 64000 years ago they they're disputed but they're very recent and there's a great deal of interest in them. And that puts them about 20,000 years before modern humans reached Western Spain. So that is to say they are, they would be Neanderthal cave art. Mm. Um, and we were Homo nodeliensis, a you know, very early hominin, seems to have been burying its dead in, in a deep, deep cave in South Africa that's been brilliantly explored by a predominantly female team of, of paleo archaeologists anthropologists so you know, we, we we go back and back in our relationship with the with the underworld and, and what we think is is new to us now is is very often just a repetition with variation of something that's been happening for tens of thousands of years that's so so true and it was interesting to me also you've just been mentioning the human element and how we've really been so connected with the under underland from the very beginning and it was really interesting to read about particularly in part one the fascinating areas in the underland in Britain Hmm. where you're looking at the underland but there's so much of us of humans Hmm. within these stories it's not a kind of pristine natural environment untouched by humans of course I'm sure parts of it are but there's so much of a human story in this and it did remind me of a comment you gave in this book of saying this is one of the most human books you've written yes Yes, that was a, that was a great surprise. I, when I began, I thought it was going to be all about oil and um, rock and ice and deep time, by which I mean the geological age of the Earth, the kind of eons and the epochs and the millennia that that crush our human time frame so 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 hugely. But but actually, I, I realised more and more that it was it was a human, it was a very very old human story as well. And it began from that that apparent paradox: Why have we gone into the darkness to see things for as long as we've been human? And trying to work that out turned, turned out to take me <laughs> seven or eight years. So yes, I mean, in um, early in the book, I 
there's a chapter called burial and and i talk about burial practices including some of these extraordinary um touching um excavations that that to me speak across thousands of years a, a barrow round um, burial site um, excavated in what's now denmark revealed famously beautifully tenderly a the body, the bones of a woman, um, and her tiny baby son, who it seems both of them probably died in in childbirth, and the baby's bones were placed on the wing of a swan, the single wing of a swan, and uh, and and the mother's arm was around the baby as well, and this double cradling, this double arm, human and more than human, placed to remember this tiny life that had scarcely lived this you know this i'm feeling shivers down the spine even as i tell it again though i've thought about it so many times Ten thousand years ago in in the southwest of britain in in near the mendips limestone landscape mesolithic people who lived incredibly hard lives of movement and deprivation nevertheless began and opened and maintained for over a century, the first cemetery known in in Britain. They wanted to honour their dead children and um, and adults by placing them in in a in a safe underground space. And there, the idea that we we place in the underworld not just what we what we hate our our sewage, our nuclear waste, what we want to get rid of, but also what we love most. That was so touching. Yeah, when I was reading that too, I I was reflecting on that and thinking what they could have been thinking at the time yes. in terms of establishing a cemetery like that. And you write that there's no comparable cemetery known to be established in Britain for another four thousand years. Yeah, well, it's a it's a gap in the record. We don't know whether there was or there wasn't. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons this one survives is that it was a, it was a very good cemetery, as it were, but also mm. that the geology. Um, a, a sort of steep-sided limestone scarp um, with loose boulders sealed sealed the space. And then this amazing thing happened. Anyone who's been in limestone, wet limestone, will know that that it it, it forms this solution of calcium carbonate that that cavers call dripstone or flowstone that then sort of runs down like a varnish. And when the first people by accident discovered this cemetery in the um, in the eighteenth century, they 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 let the first light fall on these bodies for. 10,000 years or so. And what they discovered was an eerie charnel house, uh, the bones of, of, of children and, and adults, which were glimmering in, in the light because they, they'd been sort of sealed by this flowstone that had run down and, and over them and had acted a bit like the varnish on a painting come to preserve them. Mm. I did actually look up what a flowstone was to kind of get a really good picture of it, yeah. and it was beautiful. Well, it takes many forms. It sort of depends how it runs. It, it, the best way to imagine flowstone or dripstone is is like candle wax, mm. sort of transparent candle wax. Wax as it comes straight off the wick before it's had a chance to set and harden, though sometimes it turns white too. And um, yeah, it can form these absurd, extraordinary, very Baroque formations um, in, in the underworld. People, Yeah, that's that's the basis of stalactites and and stalagmites, but it, it forms great curtains and ruches and waterfalls and all sorts of other things. And, and, and it preserves things as well, including cave art, as well as buried bodies. 
Yes, that was a really interesting fact later on in the book that uh, it sounds like it was just so fantastic that that was the case now that we're so lucky to have these beautiful works of art in caves. Mm. I did want to pick up on limestone, which you say um, is usually formed of the compressed bodies of marine organisms. Mm. I mean, that is also pretty staggering in terms <laughs> of what materials make up the underland in various continents, in various areas or regions in the world, and limestone being such a fascinating form or, or material, and as you say, has that wetness to it as well. Yes, that well, I'm so glad you share my slightly obscure <laughs> passion for limestone. But, I mean, I live on I live on chalk here in South South Cambridge, where I live. Just just we're just on the chalk, and the chalk then runs for hundreds of miles to the English Channel. Uh, and and becomes part of the the same deposition that gives the famous um, white cliffs of, of of Dover and so forth. Chalk is also compressed marine bodies, but yeah, I, I mean limestone. I mean the whole of the deep time history of the Earth in in many ways is a necropolis. It's a, a gathering of the dead and a compressing of of, of dead life. Um, but limestone, particularly, so in effect, it forms as people will know just by. Um, trillions and trillions of, of, of tiny marine organisms, uh, foraminiferae and coccolithophores, which just die and then they have a little bit of calcium in their exoskeleton. They rock down to the bottom of the ocean and form increasingly deep sort of layers of silt, as it were, dead silt, dead body silt. And that, that builds up and becomes its own pressure force. And and then over over deep time, it gets compressed into, uh, well, chalk and um limestone and, and even marble depending on heat and pressure so yeah we when you're moving through limestone you're moving through an astonishing life force that has been lithified mm. it was so evocative when you were writing about your experience with sean in that really confined space um, <laughs> and you were saying that suddenly from either side of the gorge fall two avalanches of stone waves of boulders and rock fragments crashing down upon us but somehow frozen in mid-sweep, cantilevered out over our heads. I see that the fragments are all glued together by calcite. Mm. And you said that your nerves started to tingle as you were passing through these hanging waves of <laughs> stone. And it, it kind of brings a jolt to your body when you think something's moving, but it's not. And it's yeah. so, I wondered what that really feels like. You know, it, it was so beautifully described. I'm really, I'm really glad that made sense to you. It, was, it yeah. took me ages to try and work out how to, I wanted to do something with tense in language there because you've, you've evoked it really well for the listeners, but we were passing through this deep limestone gorge and cut by a river way, way underground. And then and then the, these, it looked almost as though there were avalanches coming at us in real time, as it were, uh, of stone, sort of white um, fragments of stone. But then they, they weren't moving. They were fused by calcite. Um, so I, I just couldn't, time made no sense. It, it, these things had formed over tens of thousands of years, but they felt as though um, they, were, they were crashing down on us in that, in that very second. So there was a danger that wasn't a danger that was felt by the body and so I had to make, I mean, language is good for this, right? You can play with tents. So uh, yeah, it, 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 when you passed between them, it felt like you were passing it into a different time zone or through a time slip. And that happens a great deal underground. When I was in Paris in the, in the catacomb labyrinth there, at the, the off-limits catacomb labyrinth, I was down there for, for three days or two and a half days. 
uh, without seeing the sun. And there you would pass through you know, a medieval quarry passage uh, and then you'd find yourself in a, a resistance bunker from, from the Second World War and then a, a sort of Wehrmacht a retreat um, space. And then you'd find yourself in a party room filled with contemporary Parisians drinking vodka and <laughs> dancing to the jams going underground and one of them dressed like Indiana Jones. I mean, you know, that's another form of time slip that was that was happening all the time. All of that was within a you know a mile or two of of tunnel of each other. Yes, that was a, a really fascinating part of the book, and also really fascinating was the advent of mushrooms growing down there. Yeah, well, mush. I mean, it sounds like you're a, you're, you're you're a fungus head as it as well, yes. or a shroom head um, <laughs> in various ways, um, if I can call you that politely. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they grew. I mean, so these these were the quarry tunnels out of which Paris was was quarried from the Middle Ages onwards. So there's this invisible city underneath the south of Paris, this sort of negative volume memory of the of the upper city of light, into which if you know the right people and have the right um, maps, you can drop and and spend spend time as as I did. But it, they've been repurposed for many uh, many intentions over the centuries. In the 18th century, they became catacombs they became ossuaries where the city could store its overspilling dead from the surface cemeteries and then yeah in the 20th century um 19th 20th century later 19th 20th centuries they became a good place to to grow mushrooms there were thousands of tons of mushrooms grown on on sort of horse manure rows down in the catacombs um and and yeah yeah tell, tell me about your your fungus uh, obsession or your fungus interest that you've been developing oh no it's happened since 2017 okay my first ever interview was actually with Peter Volobin. Ah, yes, right. Yeah, who was so lovely. And I know he was drawing on the work of a range of scientists in his book and kind of communicating mm-hmm. it to a more general audience. That got me thinking in terms of how it's so interconnected with trees, which I absolutely also adore. Yes. And and then I, I guess later have had the opportunity to speak with fungi experts and oh, it's amazing to think that it's its own kingdom, that it's not a plant and it's not an animal. Right. But it kind of has features of other kingdoms. I don't know. There's something so mysterious about the fact that it's both above ground and mm-hmm. under the ground. Mm-hmm. And there's just, we get this brief fleeting moments above ground where we can appreciate what's going on, but there's so much more that we can't see. And that's why I loved your chapter with um, Merlin Sheldrake. Yeah, who's who's got the most extraordinary book that's about to be published called Entangled Life: How Fungi Shape the World and Change Our Minds. Um, so that that's definitely going to be one for you and anyone out there who's who's interested in in mycology. And but yeah, it's I mean I say very early on in the book, you know, if you if you look up on a sunlit uh, sorry on a moonlit clear night, you can see you can see starlight that's travelled trillions of miles. But if you look down you can see as far as your toe <laughs> and, uh, and and the, the the revelations around the wood wide web and mycorrhizal fungi and the way they connect individual trees into intercommunicating forests which peter volleben was one of the first people to to communicate to a very wide audience but was pioneered by suzanne simard and, and, and other forest ecologists and of course has been written about by indigenous cultures or spoken about by indigenous cultures for for thousands of years as a kind of self-evident truth mm. um it is astonishing so yeah that trees trees 
connect and communicate and share resources with one another by means of a of, of an ancient 400 million year old mutualism with certain kinds of uh, mycorrhizal fungi that together form this incredible complex gossamer network of mycelium in the soil that we walk on all the time whenever you're walking around trees or in the, in, in in many parts of the world you'll be walking above the wood wide web and just that simple i mean so much about the underland right there you know mm. go down a centimeter below the sole of your foot and you're into a the kingdom of the gray uh, the world of, of of fungi and their relationships with trees wow <laughs> it blows my mind and yours yeah Exactly. And you made that comment in the book a number of times that you were kind of still processing it and how you first were introduced to the idea by your friend who mm. was dying of a terminal illness mm. and that that sparked your interest and wonder. And I wondered, are you still processing it? Yeah, well, we always, we always will be because we, you know, we cannot know the kingdom of the grey, which is the, the phrase I use, I think, I remember it's China Mievel, I think, introduced me to it for, for, for the kingdom of fungi. It just, so little of it makes any sense to us. We're just the beginnings of the of, of, of a purchase upon its otherness. Um, I, I dream at one point in the book of being able to, to speak in spores, to have a language that is adequate to the kingdom of the grey, to fungi and, and all that they do without mutating and, um, as it were, anthropomorphizing this, this world. And the Wood Wide Web has proved such a powerful metaphor for for connection, and I do see I do see the use of it. Mm. I mean, during the during the pandemic, in a way, we you know, through through the World Wide Web and through a kind of Word Wide Web, people began to create mutual structures of support and sharing in in communities around the world and and between nations, and it was it was amazing to see. But that's not quite what fungi are doing. They're, <laughs> and nor are they, you know, ruthless neoliberal trading organisms that are trying to maximise their own good. There's, we're always projecting onto the animal kingdom and, and and onto landscape. And maybe, maybe that's what I meant all the way back at the the very first question you asked about how we're we're very bad at saying what places make of us. Mm. And one of the things that is um, so interesting that you've just brought up there around mutualism and you talk about this non-hierarchical network, mm. but you say that mutualism is a subset of symbiosis in which there exists between organisms a prolonged relationship that is interdependent and reciprocally beneficial. Mm. Although, as you show in the book, it's not always instantly reciprocal. There are so many different ways that fungi and trees interact and it's not all the same. And that was another thing that really blew my mind was that there wasn't really one predictable or there wasn't one rule of behaviour in the fungi world. Hmm. No, no. I mean, again, this is just the, the beginnings of, 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 of an understanding. I mean, the modern science... Is, around this the wood wide web is is really a scant quarter century old um so the early experiments that are, are being carried out now are still trying to determine how much carbon is traded via the wood wide web um how, how much signaling that's to say communication goes on between trees via the wood wide web and and, and plants as well i should say there's there's evidence that plants can, um, so for example, a plant may come under attack by a, a particular insect species. And there's evidence that a plant under attack will warn 
a plant further away from the attack, as it were, by means of the wood wide web, the fungal connection through the through the root tips of the trees and into the into in, into the root tips of other trees and plants, that this attack is happening so that the the other plant or tree can can upscale its chemical defense against that particular attack. I mean that that's amazing. That that is as Simard calls it trees talking to one another mm. and um we both should and shouldn't be surprised by that i mean anyone who's been in a, a, a broadly forest in a on a spring day i mean i i can't think of a, of a place more alive with conversation <laughs> between between creatures and 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 plants and and and, the, and parts of the world yes and it does remind me uh, when you say and i'm very much paraphrasing that you can't really be solitary or alone in a forest hmm. Do you feel that? I never feel alone. It feels like I couldn't be more alive than when I'm in a forest. Wonderful. Yes. Does I, that feel the same for you? Yes, it does. I, I, if I ever write a big book again, if if the world ever makes it possible and, and I have the energy, it, it'll be called Heartwood and it'll be about people and trees and forests um, um, around the world. So, yeah, I, I, I do feel that very, very strongly. Um, I mean, they're just bubbling bubbling with life and, and bubbling with 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 communication as well there's there's some um uh one of those elaborate german verbs that means something like uh to 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 take pleasure in going for 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 a walk uh, a solitary walk in the forest but i that's that's even when i'm alone i'm i'm not alone as you as exactly as you say and there's wonderful you know wonderful anthropology around this the many the many eyes and the many voices of of the forest and one of the most beautiful to me or touching moments when I was reading this book was when you were drawing links between trees and love and you wrote that when you were in the, it was, I guess, a city forest, mm. wasn't it? Yes, it is. Epping Forest, just a big, big, big uh, sort of a peri-urban forest on the, the boundary of London. It sounds truly amazing with, you know, 400, 500-year-old trees. Yes. And you were saying lying there among the trees despite a learned wariness towards anthropomorphism, I find it hard not to imagine these arboreal relations in terms of tenderness, generosity, and even love. And you were talking about these trees that are kind of linked together in some ways and how they can kind of link up at the base and in different parts of the trees. Yes. And um, it was really beautiful when you were talking about the kissing branches that hmm. have pleached with one another the unseen connections forged by root and hyphae between seemingly distant trees. Mm. And the one thing that just got me like in the gut was you quoting Louis de Bernier, mm. who wrote about a human relationship mm. that endured into old age. Quote, we had roots that grew towards each other underground. Mm. And when all the pretty blossom had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. Mm. Isn't, that, isn't that wonderful? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a version of Ovid's myth of Baucis and Philomel as well. Um, yeah, trees kiss, uh, they snog, um, they embrace, <laughs> they they grow into one another. Even the um, the technical term for for where trees branches grow grow into one another, so that the the cambiums uh, interconnect is is called inosculation, which means sort of in kissing, into kissing, mm. uh, in from the Latin uh, osculare. And yeah, I, I I you know I'm I'm getting on a bit these days. Of, uh, 44 years and I've been married for 20 of those and um, I recognize that the way that that love works uh, underground as well as 
uh, as well as openly and above ground. You know, you grow towards one another and in ways that are often invisible to you. Um, it takes time and yeah, the pretty blossoms fall away. But um, if you're lucky and 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 deeply love love the person you're with for a long time, then um, then these other structures are are there too, and they're 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 the long ones. They're the they're the civilizations. Mm. It made me think. Um, I actually have three trees growing and kissing. <laughs> to you. Very very close together. Okay. Yeah, three very different species. Different species. All right. Which we didn't plant. There was only one planted in that spot, and somehow three grew up in the same spot as um yeah semi mature adult trees now. Uh, so, so there's just an ongoing snogathon in your in your garden. Yeah. What what, what are this what what species are are getting it on there? Oh, I don't. Some of them we don't even know. Okay. We did um, put a protea tree, which is very tall now, in the backyard, and that's the one we deliberately put there. And then there are two others which I have am yet to identify, which are very visually distinct. Fantastic. And they're just so close together, and all their branches are intertwined, and their their roots at the base, their trunks are right beside each other in a clump. It's just amazing. Well, I don't know how endo and ectomycorrhizal fungi um, work down in Australia, but um, uh, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were they were busy webbing with one another through the <laughs> through the fungi underground too. It was pretty special. One of the other things that we're already talking about, and which I wanted to ask about, was this way that we introduce human concepts to nature in a way to try and understand hmm. things and 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 I guess relate to them in some way. At the end of that chapter or that section with Merlin, you were talking about how we really have very inadequate language to mm. describe what's happening at the moment, particularly in the forest's underland, mm. um, and that perhaps we need a new language altogether, one that doesn't automatically convert it to our own use values, you know, that uses that kind of capitalistic language where it's very much a transaction and or, by contrast, a socialist, hmm. so-called socialist model. Hmm. Um, and I was really, I just thought it was funny that Merlin was saying, well, that's your job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're the, you're the, you're the poet, you're the, yeah. you're the writer. Um, How does that feel when it is your job to, to, you know, and others' job to create this new language? Well, um, I guess in a sense, uh, well, a very, very loose sense, under, Underland is, is an attempt to do that across 500 pages, which yeah. is to say it, it it's experiments with language. It's sometimes it's a sort of prose poetry. Other times it's, or, or it aspires to that. Other times it's a much more expository prose. But, but uh, I mean, I tried to, if I can say this, I tried to give Underland its own Underland in terms of language. So I want, mm. there are patterns that recur through the book. And one of them is, is to do with mutualism. Another is to do with that image of that the hand on the cave wall, the open hand raised in greeting and communication. There are various other motifs. And I wanted to allow them to um, to reach out to one another as a, for the reader as a kind of word-wide web, a sort of partly buried structure that when you read across the book as a whole becomes partly visible to you if you, are, if you tune into it. And mm. that was just, I mean, that's just my small attempt. But I mean, more interesting, I think, is uh, I write about Robin Wall Kimmerer, the um, brilliant American and uh, First Nations Potawatomi citizen member who is has, on the one hand, indigenous knowledge at her fingertips and indigenous language 
and then the other is a trained botanist and plant scientist. And people will, your readers, I'm sure, will, any of them will know her her, her great great books, Gathering Moss and Braiding Sweetgrass, yes, which are about what happens when you unite these two forms of of knowing, very different forms of knowing and knowledge and discipline, as it were. Incredible, incredible. And and she makes the point in Braiding Sweetgrass and elsewhere that Ptawatomi language uh, is is brilliantly active in the way it ascribes life to more than human entities. And English, as it were, if we can call it that, isn't. It tends to subordinate things that aren't human to, to it. Um, and it also makes them uh, objects. It, it objectifies them. Mm-hmm. It deprives them of, of, of life. Whereas the grammar of animacy, as Robin calls it, in um, indigenous languages often recognizes at a grammatical level. Uh, the word for bay, uh, a bay of water, is, is a verb in Potawatomi. Uh, there's a beautiful word, pupawi, which means um, the force that drives mushrooms up through the leaf litter overnight, causing them to explode into being on the surface. And yeah, this, this is wow. what, a, what a compressive acknowledgement of the, the life of the world beyond the human. Yeah, it really does bring to mind just how deficient we are in some ways um, in terms of how we're currently in our contemporary language talking about these things. And, mm. of course, in Landmarks, you know, you do also draw on the old languages of areas in Britain and how they had such a rich language to draw from that yeah. really was very highly specific. And it feels like that that specificity and that literariness mm. and how evocative language can be has gone missing. It doesn't feel the same. Or uh, Obviously, I wasn't there, but you know, <laughs> reading landmarks and getting an understanding of what the possibilities were with language, you know, in Scots Gaelic, for example, yeah. was just mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it is mind-blowing. Um, and and I know that you know, many, many decolonizing conversations are happening in Australia around these questions, you know, the extraordinary mm. overwritten uh, in the sense of being uh, kind of erased uh, indigenous languages that are just astonishingly alive and attentive to to landmarks in that sense to to aspects of place and weather and creaturely life um yes i i wanted to do a, a sort of salvage archaeology project on on languages for landscape in in britain and ireland so i spent several years gathering thousands of 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 place words as i came to call them for aspects of weather and and landscape and creatures and uh changes in the environment and and so forth so and and i discovered this yeah dazzling word hoard to use um seamus heaney's phrase from his translation of of beowulf uh, around 33 languages and dialects and sub-dialects from around what we now call britain and ireland from from shetlandic which is a sort of scots sub-dialect down to Cornish, which um, is is an extraordinary sort of Britonic, Brythonic language in in origin, and wow, just so much richness. There's, I mean, the, the example I always give is this is this Gaelic term from the Outer Hebrides, Runic Muim, which literally translates as mackerel moor, and mackerels have these spotted, dappled, bruised flanks, as it were, of colour, and this phrase means the the shadows cast by clouds on moorland on a sunny windy day so just this this entire weather drama of of the, the the cloud bruises as they move across the moor 
in the Outer Hebrides, driven the clouds driven by the wind, and this gets transposed onto the flanks of the mackerel that are caught offshore there, and then and then rebounds into the language itself as this incredible compressive phrase. It's so interesting that when you think about these languages and and the use of them, the current use of them. I know when I went to the Isle of Skye people were still absolutely speaking Scots Gaelic to the point where some people were only speaking to us in that Hmm. um, at a hotel and we were like, oh, we didn't know we had to learn another language. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they were all on the road signs and it just was fascinating that there is certainly still linguistically a, a lot of that living on in different ways. But I wondered whether that was still the case with the landscape um, in terms of how, how people are describing the landscape around them. Is it, yeah. is it confined to practicality or does it extend to, you know, beautiful descriptions of everyday beauty? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question. And it, it, weigh, it wades as a question into the, into a, a really precarious situation for Gaelic. So we, on the whole, we wouldn't say Scots Gaelic, we'd just say Gaelic, and then Irish Gaelic would just be referred to as as Irish. Um, mm. So so when I say Gaelic, I, I mean the Gaelic that's spoken in uh, Scotland predominantly, what we now call Scotland. Um, and you were, yeah, you were there in Heartland on, on the Isle of Skye. Um, what's, what's happening is that the number of speakers is increasing, but the number of, as it were, first language speakers is is declining um that's just so so um people can learn gaelic at school there's a lot of to take up on duolingo and and places like that but people who speak it as their uh, fully native kind of either first language or 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 shared first and second languages if uh, they'd all be bilingual um that that is increasingly confined to the older generations on the on the islands particularly the outer hebrides the inner hebrides and parts of the the north and west, and it it is a language in peril, and it's an utterly beautiful language. And the the many friends I have up there, those who who use it, use it fully poetically as well as pragmatically. They they absolutely relish its um uh its poetic dimensions. But I think uh, it's if you're learning it as a almost as a as a hobby language, mm. it's 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 harder to retain those those reverberations. Yeah, it certainly requires to keep using it yes. um, and also with others who can understand yes. and speak it fluently. Yes. No, I really, I fear for, it, it was really suffering 20 years ago. It, it, it picked up again uh, over a decade and there's been a lot of investment. There's BBC Alba, there's a, there's a fully Gallic um, broadcast channel. Wow. Um, and uh, and as you say, there's all, all the signs are north of the border are, bi- are bilingual, yep, Gallic and, Gallic and English. Yeah, it is a beautiful language. Yeah, I did. Oh. <laughs> I did sign up to that on Duolingo. Did you? I'm not that far <laughs> advanced yet. It's very, very. Because <laughs> I wanted hard. to be able to try at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it's it's staggeringly beautiful. It's, it's sort of if you imagine Sean Connery speaking, um, there's all these shushes and shushes, and yeah. it's a gorgeous, soft, marshy language. The reason why I ask about that, I guess, and using language is because throughout this book you do talk about and reflect on the Anthropocene Mm. and human agency shaping the landscape in sometimes good but often very bad ways and that will have long-lasting effects and will leave a mark Maybe it will still be there above ground, but you do say it will definitely be underground. Mm. And 
there was just a line that struck me when you wrote, words are world makers and language is one of the great geological forces Mm. of the Anthropocene. And that really struck me Mm. because the words in this book, Underland, to me were very powerful Mm. and did really move me. And you said you try to be poetic in this book and you certainly, I think, exceeded that. But it did make me think that if words are so powerful and, as you say, that it can shape the landscape, it's a geological force, what are the implications for that? And I guess that goes back to our discussion earlier about the inadequacy of language at the moment. And so I wondered when you were going through these very intense kind of physical and mental and emotional experiences, visiting with these amazing characters in the book in in, um, Britain but also outside of Britain as well, Where did you get to when you were reflecting on humans and our less positive role, Hmm. you know, the way that we have really, yeah, I can't even quite describe what we've done to the earth, but (laughs) how did you respond to that, thinking about it through that underland lens? Well, um, for your listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with the the idea of the Anthropocene, this this is the proposition that we are now in a new earth epoch as stratigraphers as geological historians would would regard it that is to say we're in a period of time where human activity is such a shaping influence on the earth in terms of the the mountains that we're scalping for for coal in terms of the the um, 50 million kilometers of borehole we've drilled into the strata in search of oil in terms of the mass extinction that's underway that we will leave a long-term signature in the strata, the, the the rock record, that will be legible for millions of years to come, and therefore that the epoch should be rechristened the Anthropocene, the the age of of Anthropos, of of man, of of humanity. Loads of objections to this idea, but it is a very powerful one, and I think it's particularly powerful because it says to us you are a legacy leaving species and the things you are doing now will live in deep time. They are how you will be remembered. Uh, And there's a moral question at the heart of Underland, which is asked by Jonas Salk, the immunologist, Nobel Prize winning polio specialist. And he says, are we being good ancestors? Mm. At the moment, the answer is no, we we really aren't. Um, How will we be remembered in the strata? I think I say somewhere by... um, pig bones by plastic bottles and by lead 207 which is the stable isotope at the end of the uranium 235 decay chain so our signatures as geologists call it in the strata are that they don't look good at the moment so it was easy to despair sometimes as i thought about our deep time future as well as our deep time pasts but in the end i i hope the book is hopeful and it's hopeful on the whole because of the people i meet and met who are all people who refuse to settle for despair they believe in language and in in will that that there is a better future out there but that it's got to be made by by many hands um and by hard work and they 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 they're all dreamers and fighters they 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 practice what rebecca solnit calls hope in the dark and you know these are these are dark dark times but we need all the hope we can get it does make me think of that 
I can't find the the section right now in all my notes, but you were talking about future thinking and how it's so difficult for us to place ourselves into the future. Yes. You know, even a hundred years from now and trying to understand the implications of what we've done and what it might actually look like for other people who are inheriting what we've been enacting onto this earth and planet. And I wondered about our ability, as you say, to be good historians and mm-hmm. to think back and you know, make sense of what we've done, but our inability to project far into the future and, and have that at mind when we're making our decisions, when we're thinking about what we're doing. Yeah, I, I think I'd say somewhere we're, we've turned into very good historians, but very poor futurologists. And yes, I, I think it's, it's partly just a function of, of, of the natural short-termism of, of human cycles and of human political structures, political terms that last you know, four years, ministerial posts that last one year, two years, maybe before you you move on. So many problems to address in the here and now, but we're really, really bad at even medium term thinking. What what's been called um, cathedral thinking, uh, which I think is a is a helpful phrase. Um, cathedrals that were being built, you know, really as a, eternal spaces, but certainly designed to last a thousand, two thousand years by the extraordinary medieval makers that raised them. Um, we, you know, we really don't think on on anything approaching those timescales. Underland ends in what what I would call a cathedral, in a way, and, and an example of good ancestry, which is in Onkalo, the um, which translates as the cave or the hiding place, which is a Finnish um, deep uh, nuclear storage facility for high level nuclear waste. And the Finns began planning for this back in the seventies, and they are the only nation to have successfully dug a grave, a sarcophagus for high-level nuclear waste below ground that will last safely, if all goes well, for 100,000 years, that will keep this toxic um, uh, byproduct of of contemporary civilization from harming the future, from harming our antecedents, as it were, or um, those who come after us. And I went there expecting this to be the end of the world, yeah. You know, kind of got to Damarung, the darkest, most awful place. And I came away really moved by by the kind of cathedral thinking that was happening in, in Finland. Yeah, that's so true. And when I was looking through the structure of your book and how you put it together, it did have this light and dark and then light and dark. And it felt like it gave you a reprieve at times when things were starting to get a little bit <laughs> despairing. There was um, some uplift Good. in the book. Um, just finally, while I've got you, I did want to ask something that people wouldn't really think of as something associated with the Underland. I mean, part of it they would, which is mining, which Mm. is something which Australia certainly has a a strong association with here for not very great reasons often. But you do also draw us into a story in North Yorkshire, which is my second favourite place in Britain. Oh, I was taking them (laughs) off. I visited Ripon and that was my other real love in Britain. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of how beautiful um, a place it can be. But I had absolutely no clue that there were tunnels and mines underneath huge swathes of Yorkshire Mm. and also that there were scientists that absolutely needed these structures to be able to study something called dark matter, (laughs) which, um, to be honest really blew my mind in terms of what it really meant for us and and also what's actually going on in terms of our bodies and 
maybe I won't say that. I'll let you get into it. But um, <laughs> well, I'm I just it, was so shocked. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, well, I that there are voids in our knowledge of the universe, and there are voids in our bodies too. When you imagine them at a, as it were, a, an atomic or a quantum level, and the great one of the great voids at the heart of our knowledge of the universe is 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 what most of it is made of um we know that a bunch of it is made of what physicists call baryonic matter that's the stuff that you know we're sitting on that that our bones are made of that if we bang you know all the stuff around us the hard stuff that we interact with that's baryonic um but that doesn't account for the mass of the universe and the various extraordinary experiments discovered this missing mass in the in the first third of the 20th century and it it still hasn't really been accounted for so the the phrase that's used for this is dark matter uh, which is an amazingly resonant phrase when there's many times when physics um brings into poetry and uh, scientists study dark matter very hard trying to get a, a handle on it because it won't interact with any of our technologies really and the place they do most of their study is way underground. So there are in a gold mine, in uh, abandoned gold mine in in, in America, in Dakota, um, inside Italian mountains, and yeah, about a vertical kilometer under the green fields of of northeast Yorkshire, <laughs> uh, there is a dark matter research laboratory, also known as Drift, and that sits like a little um, scientific cuckoo in, the, in, a, in a much bigger nest. The nest is a potash mine that's been running for decades now and that has um, webbed this extraordinary um, vast labyrinth of, of drift that is to say mining tunnels both back inland under the moors and and way out under the sea mm. as well so I, I went out along these drifts in a in a vehicle and you know the guy who was driving me this crazy chauffeur I had who's really enjoying one of his last days before retirement by trucking me out. He would sort of say, well, oh, we just passed the coast. Oh, we just passed the shipping lane. And you realize that you are <laughs> way out under the North Sea um, and that somewhere behind you is a is a scientist peering into a screen a mile underground or a kilometer underground trying to work out what the hell the missing mass of the universe is made of. And the thing that really caught me at the end of that section, that story, was your conversation got quite philosophical and mm. theological at the end. Mm. And um, you asked Christopher, does it change the way the world feels knowing that 100 trillion neutrinos pass through your body every second, mm. that countless such particles perforate our brains and hearts? Does it change the way you feel about matter, about what matters? Mm. And, um, yeah, that just really struck me because just like with the fungi and mm. that what's going on underneath our feet is so amazing to us that we don't quite understand, but we're just beginning to appreciate it also to me felt like a, a similar thing. Mm. I mean, I certainly didn't appreciate it till I read this. Mm. Well, I, it, it just, I mean, we know so little, I guess that's one of, we, 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 we hold these little tapers up in the darkness and illuminate one tiny stretch of cave wall and we think we think we know the whole underland i mean that's a corona's reminded us of of you know how how out of control we are how how very little we know as well it's been a humbling experience mountains humble us in 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 more pleasant ways i think they remind us of the stretches of deep time and mm. and the things that we we will we'll never know but yes i it, it's very odd to think of our bodies as as these 
kind of vast gossamer webs to these tiny subatomic particles that that whiz through us all of the time and again it in a sense i, I wondered what it would be like as a physicist to live in that world conceptually for most of your thinking life as it were just as i sometimes ask geologists what it's like to live in deep time for most of their thinking lives but christopher's answer was very beautiful mm. he said um he said yeah you know it amazes and unsettles me but mostly it, it makes me astonished that i can i can walk on the cliffs near my home and and that i can hold the hand of the person i love and and not fall through her as it were and i <laughs> i just uh i just thought that was that was absolutely wonderful that both ignorance and knowledge at their very best restore to us a sense of value a sense of what what truly matters and in the end that that that's probably love and i think that's what this book really is it comes back to love and um and humans love for nature but mm. also each other and what we need to do to make sure that we're still here yeah that's well that's a wonderful summary and a very generous one i, I appreciate it I um I was really touched by it and that's probably not even a very good adjective to say no, but it's just right. Yeah, it really was and um I just so valued this book and I can't wait to reread it because I think I'll get a lot out of it again. So thank you Robert for for writing it and all your previous works which thank are you. offering something very unique to us. And uh, I hope you have an absolutely phenomenal trip to Isle of Skye <laughs> and uh, a great visit to the Coolins. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a place that reminds you not to not to fall through the world. That's for sure. So, um, th thanks for your for your conversation today, and to everyone who's who's listened in. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. But I now welcome Dania Jacobs back to the show and um, say thank you so much for coming on board again. No worries. Thanks very much, Amy. It's great to be with you again. Um, I've got to say I'm a bit of a fan of your work, which is probably a weird thing to say to a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was really, yeah, so excited about this case. And, I mean, this show um, has been covering uh, native forest logging since the very beginning, um, and it's something I'm so passionate about and so many others in Melbourne, Victoria and Australia are also very passionate about in, in terms of preventing uh, native forests from being logged, particularly our old-growth forests that are just so rare um, there's such little old growth left. And, of course, we need to preserve those other um, semi-older trees so that they can become old growth trees. Um, so first up, I, I did want to ask from your perspective, being a lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia and being involved, um, playing such a critical role in this case, where did this case come from? Because I, I do recall that Steve Meacher said that you really um, played a very key role in meeting with um, friends of Leadbeater's possums and um, and kind of sharing with them, I guess, the legal options that are available to a community group once they've kind of exhausted all of the, you know, things that you would do before taking such a course of action. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the case commenced late in 2017 and earlier in that year we'd started researching options around challenging the logging industry's exemption from national environment laws 
And that was occurring around the time the regional forest agreements were first expiring at the end of their 20-year terms. Um, and after we'd done a lot of that research, I went out to Salangi and spoke with the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum group about the work that we'd been doing and their concerns to see the critically endangered um, Leadbeater's Possum in their local area protected. They'd been working over many, many years um, to secure the protection of that species and its only habitat in the world, which is around the forest east of Melbourne, Palangi area, Hillsville area, Warburton area. Um, and from there, um, we started working really closely with the Friends um, and the case was launched later that year. And it's been a, um, a wild ride over the last three years and, and, and a hell of a lot of work um, to see the case sort of work its way through the courts and go through a really lengthy and complex trial around the middle of last year. Um, and then finally in May this year, we um, received a really positive, um, incredible decision from the federal court. And then we just received the final orders um, a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, certainly very much anticipated and so many people were very, very keenly following it to see what those final orders would be. Um, before we get to those final orders, which are so significant, um, I did want to ask for, for those perhaps who haven't heard from Steve and um, aren't that familiar with the case, what were some of the key features? Because I know that um, when I was reading through the final orders and also the summary, the judgment summary from Justice Mortimer, it appears that the um, EPBC Act, which is the Federal Environmental um, Law Act, seemed like it was a very critical piece of legislation um, and also regional forest agreements um, linked in with that. And I wondered whether, given your great expertise in uh, environmental law, you could explain to the layperson um, the kind of legal framework or parameters you were working within in this case and the kind of argument that you were making? Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess at a high level, probably the simplest place to start is, um, is with um, the court's findings, um, yeah, taking a step back. And that was quite simply that Big Forest had not complied and was unlikely in the future to comply with both state and federal laws that are designed to protect threatened species. Um, the court found that logging operations in certain areas of forest in Victoria's central highlands had failed to comply um, with certain aspects of the Victorian Code of Practice for Timber Production. And compliance with that state law is a requirement under the regional forest agreement. And regional forest agreements are the basis for the exemption that the logging industry operates under from our national environment law. And our national environment law, um, the key act there is the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. And because um, Big Forest had not complied with state laws, that meant that um, that RFA, Regional Forest Agreement, exemption fell away and didn't, um, didn't apply to Big Forest operations in those forests. And what that meant was that um, the State Logging Agency had to comply with our national environment laws, and it hadn't done so. And there was mm. really no argument that they hadn't complied with our national environment laws. The real argument was around whether that exemption applied or not. Um, and there was a clear finding that the exemption didn't apply um, because there were breaches of the state laws. 
And in that regard, um, is it that they were logging in areas that ha that were found to have had um, threatened and critically endangered species present? Yeah, correct. So at a really simple level, um, you know, that the, the, the key operation that was found to be non-compliant um, was exactly what the community would expect, and that is that they were proceeding to log really high-intensity logging operations at the precise locations where species threatened with extinction were found to be living. Um, and um, there was a real risk that those operations were killing those animals, um, and it was just plain that um, their habitat was being really irreversibly destroyed by those operations. Um, and that conduct was found not to comply with the precautionary principle, which is um, one of the laws in the Victorian Code of Practice. And um, um, so oh, one of... Oh, no, I was just going to say, there were two key species that featured in the case. They were the greater glider, which is... Um, a threatened species, very charismatic, looks a little bit like an Ewok, <laughs> but um, very fluffy, um, big giant ears, um, and it's a marsupial, but it glides between trees in the canopy, and it's really dependent on old hollows where it dens, um, and so it can't survive. Um, obviously, it can't survive where the forest being cleared, um, but it also can't survive in younger forests that doesn't yet have those, those hollows. Um, and the other species was the critically endangered Leadbeater's possum, which is Victoria's formal emblem. Um, and so logging was proceeding in coops or their designated areas that have been planned for logging was proceeding in, um, in coops where both those species had been found and were living and where the habitat was um, really high-value habitat, these older forests with um, lots of hollow trees, really critical to the survival of both of those species. Um, and those operations were found to be non-compliant with the proportional principle and also with several other um, Leadbeater's possum-specific um, habitat protection rules that are in the Victorian scheme. Mm. And in terms of the, the types of protections for critically endangered species, um, I wonder, I think it was in our last chat, we were talking about the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act um, and, you know, there are kind of these action plans, I think, from memory that um, are created mm -hmm. for certain species. Did, were those kind of yeah. action plans part of this, this court case in the sense that they were um, contravening them or undermining them? Yeah, that's, yeah, really, um, really interesting question. So um, the content of the action plans or action statements <clears throat> that are made under the Foreign Fauna Guarantee Act, um, the rules that apply to logging that are in those plans are sort of transcribed and appear in the Code of Practice um, and its related documents. And so non-compliance with um, the rules for the Leadbeater's possum um, that um, came out of the action statement certainly featured in this case, um, in particular non-compliance with rules to protect really, really high-quality habitat for the Leadbeater's possum. Um, and then at the time that this case was heard, quite, um, quite shockingly, the greater glider had already been listed as a threatened species for a number of years, but hadn't yet had one of these action plans made for it. Um, and that was, um, and that was you know, shocking for the species. It meant that it wasn't getting the protection that it, 
really desperately needed in the forest and that logging was sort of um, proceeding unabated where it was living in, in areas of really high-value habitat. Mm. I'm speaking with Daniel Jacobs, who is Senior Lawyer at Environment, uh, Environmental Justice Victoria, and we're talking about the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum Inc. versus Vic Forest's case, which was run in the federal court. And, of course, um, Daniel was a key person, uh, lawyer involved in this case. And, um, Dania, in terms of coops, um, it's obviously this is a logging term. Um, it's not something that people who might visit a forest would usually think of, um, but it is a kind of patch of land, a group of trees, um, and other. You know, there's so much um, in terms of not just trees, but understory and um, a whole range of other uh, vegetation that exists around these trees. That's also affected by logging and salvage burns. Um, but I did want to ask about uh, the coops in particular. There were 66 that were identified um, by, you know, your your argument and by your case. Um, was it the case that in all 66 coops it was found that um, Vic Forests had breached the, the kind of rules? Yeah, that's right. So 26 of those 66 um, had been partly or wholly logged um, and Vic Forest was found to have logged in breach of the rules in those 26 coops and in a way that um, was um, seriously or irreversibly damaging um, habitat for the greater glider um, and also in a way that's going to have a significant impact on both greater glider and leadbeater's possums. Um, and in the remaining 40 areas, those were intact areas of forest that hadn't yet been logged. And the case um, was heard on the basis of whether the logging that was planned in those coops um, was going to be conducted in accordance with the law. And the court found that it um, was unlikely to and that logging in the way that was planned was um, likely to have a significant impact on both those species again. Um, it was going to be damaging critical habitat and would be seriously um, damaging the greater glider. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and when we, when I last spoke to Steve, I, I think I discussed um, the fact that Citizen Science and um, Watch WOTCH, as well as his group, Friends of Leadbeater's Possum, are very active in Tulangi at identifying areas where these threatened and critically endangered species are actually residing. Um, in the forest, in the trees. And so it's not really, I guess, a surprise to um, the state government of Victoria or to Vic Forest, presumably, that these um, animals are likely to live there and in some cases may have even received citizen reports of these species being in these particular coops that are to be logged. Isn't that the case? Yeah, that's right. And and citizen science played a really critical role in this case. Um, there were um, proven detections of um, hundreds of greater gliders and several leadbeater's possums across these 66 um, forest patches that were subject of the case. And many of those detections were um, detections made by citizen scientists who had meticulously gone out into the forest at night and video recorded the animals um, in the trees um, and that evidence was presented to the court. And ultimately that evidence as to the presence of the species wasn't challenged. Um, it was really of such high quality um, 
yeah, that it, that it, I don't think it could have been undermined um, and it was accepted. Um, and, yeah, so it's really not a surprise to the state government um, where these species are living. Those, um, those sightings made by community groups are really regularly reported to government um, and, regrettably, logging is often proceeding following those reports being made and that was precisely what um, had occurred in these 66 areas. Um, so the, yeah. the sightings have been reported to the logging agency or to government, um, and yet the plans to log um, were proceeding anyway, um, including at the exact locations, cutting the exact trees that the species were living in. Yeah, mm. It's heart-wrenching when you did... I mean, I saw so many updates on Twitter of, of um, people living in that area, you know, reporting about the logging proceeding in those types of areas, and it's um, really hard to to see that happen. But it is also really exciting because um, this court case has really empowered a lot of people and gotten people quite, um, I guess, excited about the idea that things can be done when it seems like all is lost. And the final orders in this federal court case for the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum is um, they're so important and so interesting. And um, I know that the court, uh, Justice Mortimer, delivered her um, judgment in May, but we did only just, um, yeah, about, gosh, when was it? Uh, a week or so ago, received the final orders for this, um, for this case. I wonder if you could take us through what those final orders were in a kind of, I'm sure they're very detailed because I looked at it, I think it was like 71 pages, but but in the um, in the short version, which was I think in the first yeah. nine pages, um, you know, what, what does it mean? What do these final orders mean? Because I think Steve said there were a number of options that were available to the justice and um, this particular order is pretty powerful. Yeah, it really is. So, um the first kind of order that was made was what are called declarations. So they are sort of final statements um, declaring that um, Victoria's state logging agency breached both state and federal laws um, and that it was likely to breach um, both state and federal laws if logging proceeded in, um, in the remaining untouched uh, coops that were subject of the case. So those are called declarations of law. Um, findings of non-compliance, I guess, set out in sort of short um, declarations of the court's findings. Um, and the second and I think really um, more important finding in terms of what, what's actually happening out in the forest on the ground um, was this is the first time that the federal court granted a final injunction to prevent logging of threatened wildlife habitat and the final orders issued injunction preventing logging in the 66 areas, home to the greater glider and leadbeater's possum. Um, and um, that's a, a really important uh, landmark decision and, and landmark orders from the federal court. Um, some of those 66 obviously had already had some logging occur in them and the remaining intact forest in those areas will be protected by the orders. Mm, it's um so essentially those 66 coops that have you know run through this whole court case are protected from Vic Forest um, seeking to log them. Yeah, they are now protected. That's right. There are some really significant areas of forest that local communities had fought really hard for over many decades, um, and which are really critical habitats to our declining wildlife. So those are 
the areas sort of around Tulangi, Mount Baubau, Hillsville, Warburton, Torbrecht. There are also areas that, you know, people in Melbourne are often visiting and are somewhat mm. familiar with. And um, I think, you know, people in Melbourne as well should be really heartened to know that some of these really important areas um, are safe for now. Um, yeah, but um, I think also it, it's important not only to look at um, the 66 areas that um, are directly subject of the orders because um, the decision set um, a really important precedent that um, should have implications far beyond just those 66 areas. Um, it clarified several really key principles in environment law, both at the state and at the federal level, um, and that will have implications for environment protection and should see um, enforcement of our national environment laws to better protect wildlife across the country and not only in forests that are threatened by logging. Mm. And so, I mean, from a law, a legal perspective, um, if you're thinking about other coops perhaps that down the track also have lead beaters, possum or greater gliders present in substantial numbers. Um, does that mean that uh, that the state logging company would be less likely to log it or that perhaps a community group would, um, you know, highlight this and suggest that it might, you know, they might take them to court? Like what kind of things, what kind of implications does a precedent like that have in terms of future areas? Yeah. Um, yeah, really good question. And I think, you know, we certainly would hope to see um, improvements in big forests, avoiding um, areas of forest where these species are living and doing the right thing and making sure that these really critical areas of habitat um, are protected. Um, some of the, one of the sort of key findings um, that the court made in terms of the state law um, is that it clarified the standard that's required to comply with the proportionary principle. That requires careful evaluation to avoid serious or irreversible damage to our environment, including our threatened species. And the court made clear that it's not enough to just write policies and plans um, in the office. Mm. That law requires actual on-ground protection of our wildlife from damage in the real world. Um, and I think that, you know, um, I think a lot of people in the community would think, well, obviously that's what our environment laws should be doing. But um, there was a lot of argument in this case about, you know, what certain plans and certain policies were saying. Um, but the court found that there was a, a real... Um, there was a real gap between what's written down in the paperwork and what we're actually seeing on the ground in the forest, and and it's the latter that's um, that's critical and that's important, and and, and it's the on ground operations that need to be um, protecting our threatened species and complying with our laws. Mm. Um, I did. Yeah. Um, I noticed um, that. Oh, go ahead. I oh, know. I, I was. I was also going to talk a little bit about. Um, you know, what some of the, the precedent value in terms of federal law um, was from this decision and, and where we think that um, should take us at a national level. Yeah, um, go ahead. Oh, I was uh, just going to bring in Bob Brown as well because I know that that was, um, he was very inspired by your case. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it was so um, so heartening to see that case launched um, a couple of weeks ago. And I think on the same day that we got final orders, like that was quite auspicious. That was very cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so the court made really important findings about when an action will have a significant impact on protected species and a likelihood of significant impact is a threshold to trigger application of our national environment laws. Um, There's a lot of really environmentally damaging activity that occurs around the country um, without application and enforcement of our federal environment laws because the businesses taking those actions don't consider that they meet the threshold of having, quote-unquote, a significant impact even where it's clear that they're impacting habitats of species that are listed as threatened with extinction under federal law. And also enforcement is really weak, um, that the government agencies aren't perhaps doing what they should to make sure that these businesses comply. Mm. Um, And the court made clear that logging in one coop containing important habitat for these species and detections of them does meet that threshold of significant impact. And that should see damaging activities around the country um, increasingly come under the purview of the Act and require assessment of those impacts and conditions imposed to threatened species or that those activities just can't proceed because they're unacceptable. Mm. Um, Danya, yeah. before I have to let you go, I just wanted to, in, in a very short period, <laughs> ask you... Um, about the EPBC Act and um, the review and particularly about the guidelines idea of having this, uh, what Graham Samuel has um, brought up as some set of guidelines that are, you know, clear to everyone as to what is allowed and not allowed, um, that, you know, a part of it maybe is part of regulation. I just wanted to ask, because it is such a, a big issue right now, what your thoughts were around the, the review of the EPBC Act and whether the discussions we're having, you know, seem to you to be the right ones in terms of how the law um, may be deficient at the moment? Um, yeah, so I think um, the discussions that we're having around deficiencies are certainly the right ones. So there are real problems with our environment laws, both state and federally. The laws themselves are too weak. They don't, um, in the sort of language of standards, I guess, they don't have standards that clearly protect threatened species that are on the path to extinction from further harm. And they also don't protect the habitat of those species from damaging industry and big business. Um, and separate to that, so sort of, there's, there's one issue around the content of the laws and whether the content is strong enough to properly protect our species, and we know it's not. Um, but separate to that, we also have real issues with enforcement. So even where the existing rules are being broken, um, the government agencies aren't holding business to account and ensuring they comply with the rules. Um, and these are, are, are some of the themes that came out of the Federal Review, the Samuels Review of the EPBC Act. Um, Mm. But um, regrettably, while we're having the right discussions about the problems, I don't think at the moment we're having um, the right discussions at the political level about the solutions. So instead of seeing the federal government um, take on the recommendations to um, strengthen protections for wildlife by bringing in a federal environment enforcement agency to make sure the rules are followed, instead we're seeing um, the current federal government effectively try to have... um, Federal, the federal government exit the environment space altogether 
and yeah. hand responsibility for environment protection solely to the state. And that will have really devastating consequences for our native wildlife and will only further weaken enforcement rather than strengthen it. Um, mm. So we need far stronger rules. We need the content of the rules to just clearly rule out activities in important areas of habitat for threatened species. Um, and we also need to make sure there's a, quote-unquote, environmental cop on the beat that's properly resourced and um, has strength and independence from government and and you know, is out there fearlessly enforcing the rules um, because really it shouldn't be left to small community groups to be um, running sort of free court battles against government agencies to hold them to account. Obviously yeah. that's really important and it's a fundamental part of our democracy that um, the community can hold government to account under the law when they break it. Um, but really there needs to be proper enforcement through a well-resourced um, enforcement agency um, and we're, ju we're just not seeing that at the moment. And mm. I think, you know, that the statistics in Australia really speak to that. We have the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. We just lost billions of animals to these catastrophic fires, one of the worst environmental disasters in living memory. And yet we know that our environment laws are just, um, they're so far behind the rest of the world. And, you know, the United States, for example, has um, proper protection for its threatened species and hasn't been anywhere near the level of extinctions that we have and the kinds of activities that are permitted in Australia just would not um, in any way be, be permitted in, in these critical areas of habitat for threatened species under other sort of equivalent legal regimes. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to have to finish it up there because we're right at the <laughs> top of the hour. But I thank you so much, Danya Jacobs. It's been a real delight chatting with you and also a big congratulations to you and your team for working on this and also um, for winning a, a great award. I think it was uh, Young Lawyer of the Year. So congratulations about that too. It was really exciting to see you win that for the Environmental Lawyer of the Year. Thanks so much, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.